Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. If you listen to this show or read my articles with any frequency, you know that I am profoundly concerned with the depth of our current sociopolitical polarization. And we have drifted into this place of binary opposition on so many issues that not only could, but should unite us, including the viral pandemic. Now, obviously, there is political tribalism at play here, but there is a deeper epistemological riddle to solve here as well. And this episode is an attempt to diagnose some of the root causes of this division, and it's an exhortation as to how each one of us individually can be a force for cooperation and moderation to pull together opposites. So this is a one-take admittedly espresso-fueled stream of consciousness soliloquy that meanders into some technical territory at times, but hopefully it makes the overarching point of how important it is for us to delineate between healthy skepticism and bad faith questioning designed to undermine our most important, albeit flawed, institutions. Off we go. Okay, here we are, January 17th, just a couple weeks into 2022, and I suppose it's only natural to pin our hopes for a improved human condition on top of a new orbit around the sun, as arbitrary as that might be. Um, personally, I'm taking a page out of Reinald Niebuhr's book and focusing on the things that I can control in my own life. That's a very stoic notion. In fact, stoicism had a great influence on Christian theologians like Niebuhr. Stoicism is really a philosophy of personal ethics that through the practice of virtue, uh, one can live a good life or what the Greeks called eudaimonia. So I've doubled down on stoicism in a variety of different ways and combined it in this strange elixir with Buddhism. Stoicism and Buddhism actually, I find to be quite similar in many ways, though I would say Stoicism is slightly more concerned with ethics than wisdom, though wisdom is a core virtue in Stoicism, and I would say Buddhism is more concerned with wisdom than ethics, though five of the steps of the Eightfold Noble Path are concerned with ethics. But I find them to be incredibly useful in this moment of epistemological crisis, where it is increasingly difficult to delineate between fact and fiction. Now, Stoicism has really um, helped me be humble and develop a willingness to be wrong. And further, Stoicism posits that our emotional response to a particular event is almost always tied to our judgment of the event and not the event itself. And once we can realize that, we can separate 
both our judgment, hence our emotionality from the event and pry our biases away from our opinions and become less emotional about our opinions um, in order to escape being blinded um, by our amygdala or by amygdala hijack. And so it really helps us to get to a true understanding of the underlying event itself. Now, Buddhism is also very useful in this regard because it gives you tools, specifically meditation, dhyana, or focused concentration, such that you are unpacking the true nature of reality and you're doing it in a way without distraction, with a lot of focused attention and rigor to get to the true nature of something. And again, these practices combined with one another couldn't be more useful in this moment. So one of the things that precipitated this particular streamed soliloquy was a conversation that I had with a friend, a colleague, you know, someone who I, I really respect a lot and who's accomplished a great many things. And he made the claim to me unabashedly that the therapeutic drug ivermectin is 100% effective both for the treatment of COVID and as a prophylactic. And just as a warning, or not as a warning, this episode really doesn't have anything to do with ivermectin. I'll talk about it a little bit, but I don't have a particular opinion about it. I'm just using this particular topic to reflect a larger societal penchant or trend. So he made this claim about ivermectin. Now, of course, I see other people, friends, colleagues, etc., posting on social media about ivermectin being a horse dewormer and uh, essentially mocking people for considering this therapeutic as potentially useful for COVID. So you got one side saying that something is a hundred percent effective. And then you've got another large group of people saying that this is a drug specifically for livestock. This is how far we are apart. This is the gaping nature of the chasm here. So, First of all, let me just say, nothing in science is ever 100%. So his claims about something being 100%, well, just on face value, that's not true. But the real question is, is it an effective therapeutic? And how would we really know? So I applied the lessons from Stoicism and Buddhism, and I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to spend 
15, 20 hours actually looking at this particular issue and see if I can actually come to some sort of determination of fact. So I tore apart primary source data, uh, particular studies. I read the original study that came out of Egypt that had subsequently been retracted. I read the other one from Argentina that then subsequently was discovered to be riddled with errors. I read a whole variety of meta-analyses. I read one actually really compelling um, study from a healthcare facility or a hospital in India um, about ivermectin. I watched quite a few videos with Tess Lowry and Dr. Campbell, who I find to be an incredibly kind of fair and balanced voice on YouTube. So there was some compelling information out there to take ivermectin seriously as a therapeutic, despite the fact that you've got 30 or 40% of the people calling it a horse dewormer. And that includes not just people on social media, but people on CNN. But then you go a little bit deeper and you said, yeah, well, this is a therapeutic that was originally developed as an antiparasitic for livestock. But not that long ago, a number of scientists found a human use for it, for scabies, and they actually won the Nobel Prize for this discovery. So it's not 100%, but it's also not 0% in terms of actually taking something seriously and having some sort of conversation or rigorous study about whether or not something is actually truly useful. And in the end, what I found to be the most reliable data, which is this gold standard placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized controlled trial called the TOGETHER trial, and together is a group of international researchers from Brazil, Canada, Australia, and the United States that are specifically looking at the repurposing of existing medications for therapeutic use. And they've run a number of gold standard trials looking at these pre-existing medications. And the one that they ran on ivermectin was stopped for futility. In other words, they found it to be ineffective in the treatment or prevention of COVID. Now, there have been a lot of other therapeutics that these gold standard studies have found to be very effective, including dexamethasone, which is an off-patent drug that has been used as an immunosuppressant in hospitals once people have severe contraction of COVID that has saved a lot of people's lives. Also, there's monoclonal antibodies. Now, that's a more difficult and expensive process, but have also been proved to be quite effective. The TOGETHER trial has found fluvoxamine to really 
decrease the chance of hospitalization post-COVID infection. Fluvoxamine really looks to be incredibly promising. And then, of course, there's Merck's therapeutic monupiravir, which has also been proven to be somewhat effective at reducing hospitalization. But of course, my friend who I talked to at the beginning has made this claim about ivermectin connected to another claim that it's not only 100% effective, but that that information is being suppressed by a collusion between big media and big tech and big pharma in order to advance an authoritarian agenda that includes mass surveillance and censorship. So I think that the government response and the response of public health agencies has been completely tone deaf and myopic in their one size fits all vaccine approach to dealing with COVID. I mean, I've been more frustrated than anyone by the missed opportunity to address the ground conditions of our national health. I mean, the data is just so clear. There is a direct correlation between people that contract severe COVID and die with conditions like metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, obesity, these conditions that develop out of chronic inflammation that can be addressed through a whole suite of lifestyle protocols from sleep to stress relief to diet, but we've just not been able to have that conversation. I mean, I know that Anthony Fauci supplements with vitamin D, but we can't talk about vitamin D even though it does bolster the immune system. Does it give you antibodies? No. But does it bolster the immune system? Yes. So why are we not talking about vitamin D? Now, it's not a cure-all, but this is the kind of nuanced conversation that we need to have. At the same time, my friend is just totally incorrect that there haven't been efforts at therapeutics. I mean, dexamethasone is off patent. It's not making anybody any money. Hydroxychloroquine was approved for a certain period of time, but these gold standard double-blind randomized controlled trials like the recovery trial or the TOGETHER trial, they have proved, as best we can know it, that hydroxychloroquine is ineffective despite the fact that some doctors seem to be willing to absolutely die on the cross of HCQ. So again, the conversation or the reality is complicated and nuanced, but that is just not at all reflected in the discourse. I mean, what we really need to have is open discourse and a rigorous pursuit of what is truly going to ameliorate the human condition. 
how are we going to help people suffer less? I mean, really what it boils down to for me is what is the difference between healthy skepticism, really robust public discourse and debate? What's the difference between that and just bad faith questioning, bad faith whataboutism that is just simply foraging for dopamine, that is really just not honestly looking for any answers. I mean, there's this meme that's circulating about the truth does not mind being questioned and a lie does not like being challenged. Yeah, the insinuation here, of course, is that the mainstream media and government and medical science and fill-in-the-blank institution is conspiring uh, around a depopulation scheme or a surveillance scheme or maximizing big pharma profits at the expense of anything else, etc. Okay, yeah, sure. Truth doesn't mind being questioned. But when are those questions truly honest questions that are looking for real answers? Because it's a lot simpler and it's a lot easier to just say, what about, than to actually answer the question. Because answering the question, and I'll just speak to my own experience, takes hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of hours. You know, I look back six, seven, eight years, and I remember birtherism. So what about Obama's birth certificate? I mean, you know, if he was born in this country, I mean, why doesn't he just show us the birth certificate? I mean, I don't know. I mean, what about all these people that are saying that he was born in Kenya? or Indonesia? And what about that photo, you know, where he looks like those other two people and he doesn't look like his parents? You know, what about that? Well, he showed us his birth certificate. And of course, this would have never been remotely an issue if he hadn't been African-American. I mean, this question was just corrosive at its core. I mean, what about the fact that Hillary Clinton is running a child sex trafficking ring in the basement of Comet Ping Pong Pizza Parlor, a pizza parlor outside of D.C.? I mean, what about that? I mean, what about all these kids? I mean, what about all those leaked emails that are riddled with mentions of pizza, with, which obviously refer to young girls' private parts and hot dogs, which obviously refer to young males' private parts? I mean, what about all of those? I mean, okay, well, I read the entire database of leaked Podesta emails on WikiLeaks. You remember those? Guccifer broke into the DNC database and stole all these Podesta emails, put them on WikiLeaks. Okay. To, I guess, continue with the food metaphor, talk about a nothing sandwich. Yeah, I spent half a day reading them skimming over some, there was nothing there. Yet this theory, this what about, which planted the seed for QAnon, 
and circulated on all the chans, inspired this guy, I think from North Carolina, to get in his car and drive to D.C. with a rifle and start shooting up Comet Pizza. Now, what about the stolen election? I mean, what about those crooked poll workers at the Fulton County polling station that busted a pipe in order to kick out Republican election officials, you know? And what about all those Trump votes that were thrown out in Maricopa County in Arizona because voters were distributed Sharpies and Trump voters uh, got a Sharpie, which would disqualify their vote. What about those? And what about the Dominion voting software that flipped votes for Trump to Biden? And what about that? Well, of course, we know now through leaked documents that Trump and his lawyers knew that those claims about Dominion voting systems were completely spurious and specious. We know that. We know that Sharpie Gate was a hoax. We counted the ballots in Georgia three times, three times. Trump picked up a few hundred votes in one county, but it didn't come close to changing the outcome. How many times did we count the votes in Arizona? In fact, we spent a year on an audit with a company from Florida that had never audited an election before whose president was an outspoken Trump supporter on Twitter. And even they found no irregularities. I mean, how many times, how many articles did we chase down around the claim that in Philadelphia, there was more votes than voters, which of course turned out to be completely false. And the same claim in Detroit, which again turned out to be completely false. I mean, what about the unveiling of this deep state corruption and the military tribunals and the ensuing re-coronation of Trump in March? I mean, in April, I mean, in August. I mean, what about the 13 flags that were flying behind Trump when he left office on January 20th? I mean, I keep trying to summon all of these whatabouts that have riddled the last five years of my life and so many other people's lives that have committed to rigorously chasing every one of these things down. I mean, what about Antifa? Of course, they were the ones responsible for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, that's the claim purported by Candace Owens, Lynn Wood, Sidney Powell, Matt Goetz. I mean, if it wasn't Antifa, wasn't it the FBI leading a, a false flag event? I mean, that was posited by Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, this is what we're dealing with. I mean, Matt Getz, on the floor of the House, of the chambers of the House of Representatives, on the evening of January 6th, called Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman, a member of Antifa. Well, who had to chase that down? Who had to chase that claim down? Well, it turned out that that was falsely reported and then redacted by the Washington Times. And all of this erosion in epistemology then spilled into COVID. I mean, COVID was a hoax, right, at first. 
the virus didn't really exist until, of course, people couldn't deny that it had a genetic sequence. But then, of course, the vaccines had a microchip. I mean, what about the nanoparticles? In the, it, it says there right on the ingredients that there's nanoparticles in it. Well, nanoparticles is not nanotechnology. But still, what about the 5G towers transmitting a viral disease? I mean, all of the hotspots for people getting COVID are places that have 5G. I mean, what about that? Well, except in Bolivia, where they actually burned down their telecommunication systems without even having 5G because they were so convinced that 5G was responsible for spreading the virus. But what about the 9,000 vaccine-induced deaths that are listed on VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System? And what about those? Well, yeah, absolutely. Vaccine safety is essential, not just for health, but for public trust. And this is why VAERS was created, to flag any patterns that then would be further investigated to determine whether there was causation or correlation. So I decided to read the first thousand reports, the first thousand entries of health administrators and family members who had made reports on VAERS where there was some kind of correlation between receiving a vaccine and subsequent death. And this is what I read, that in the overwhelming majority of these cases, the patient was very, very old or had terminal cancer or had full-out dementia or was in hospice or was on hunger strike. And there's a lot of other details, honestly, that are too gruesome to report here on the podcast. But the amount of energy and time that it takes to debunk every single one of these whatabouts is so exhausting. And I'm getting to why that was a problem. But the claims have just continued and the ground keeps shifting and the goalposts keep moving. I mean, what about the cytotoxicity of the vaccine-induced spike protein? I mean, what about the spike protein? Isn't the spike protein itself toxic? Okay, well, I read a paper, a study in Nature, a highly stringent scientific publication, where they took the spike protein, this kind of lipoprotein that envelops the virus, but they didn't put the coronavirus in there. They put a pseudovirus or a dummy virus, and they injected that into mice. And it turns out that the spike protein itself has detrimental effects on mitochondrial function in mice. So the spike protein is detrimental. But guess what? It turns out that the vaccine-induced spike protein is different than the spike protein that is native to the virus. So the spike protein that is native to the virus 
what it does, it's a protein that surrounds the virus that connects with the ACE2 receptor on the outside of a healthy cell. And after that connection is made, the membranes of the virus cell and the human cell fuse such that the virus can pass through and into the healthy cell and hijack its reproductive capacity and then spread. But it turns out that the vaccine-induced spike, spike protein does not have that fusing capability because it was designed in such a manner with different amino acid sequencing to eliminate the ability of that spike protein to fuse to a healthy cell. But of course, to even remotely understand this is dozens of hours of research. Now, what about the Japanese biodistribution report that showed up that the, the mRNA nanoparticles and the spike protein were showing up in huge proportions in all the organs of the body? Okay, well, you've got to find this report, and then you've got to read the English summary of it to actually discover that this was a study in mice and rats where they were injecting what would be the equivalent of 50 times the dosage that is in the current Pfizer mRNA vaccine into a mouse or a rat. Okay, but what about antibody-dependent enhancement, ADE? The notion that the vaccine is actually creating antibodies that increase the spike protein's ability to fuse with the ACE2 receptor. Hence, the vaccine is actually increasing the virality or the toxicity of the virus itself. And uh, this is Denvaxia all over again. Well, Denvaxia was a vaccine that was developed and distributed in the Philippines to help prevent dengue fever. And it was subsequently recalled. And I could go on about that saga for about an hour because I actually had to read that entire situation for a dozen hours to understand the claims that people were making about antibody-dependent enhancement with the mRNA vaccines. So the claim was, well, that we were generating antibodies with the vaccine that would increase the ability for the virus cell to fuse with the human cell and pass the virus through to the human cell. Well, but that was actually studied in regards to the ancestral strain. And it was found that no, that the antibodies weren't being created that increase the fusing capability of the virus. In fact, the antibodies that were being created decrease the fusing capability. But what about Delta? I mean, Delta's changed and, and everything's different about Delta. I mean, the spike protein is mutated and now the vaccine, well, is actually creating antibodies that create more fusion. Well, no, that, that actually, once you looked at it, that wasn't true either. So what I'm getting at here is that for the last seven, eight years, we've just been pummeled 
with what about, with, in some cases, bad faith questioning, questioning that's not looking for answers, but questioning that is designed only to be contrarian, and in some cases to dopamine forage, to post on the internet and on social platforms in the form of a meme with sensationalism and editorial bias such that when you deploy it, it leverages human negativity bias and generates follows and likes and shares and engagement. And that opens up neural reward pathways and gives you a sense of both sort of accomplishment and reinforces the behavior of doing it over and over again. So what we get is endless questions, endless questions. And so this is the balance that we have to strike because eventually you get the question, well, what about the lab leak? I mean, what about this idea that, that, that the virus escaped from the Wuhan Virology Institute? Well, if you're exhausted by answering specious questions, you might just shut that down. But, you know, as it turns out, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? I mean, there is compelling evidence to demonstrate that the virus could have escaped from that lab. Now, some of that evidence seems circumstantial. I mean, yes, there is a virology lab in Wuhan, the provenance of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And in that lab, they are studying coronaviruses that are specifically germane to bats. Now, of course, there's discussion about people that had gotten sick from the lab and, you know, take that for what you will. The most compelling evidence that I read was that the virus itself was very enabled very quickly for large-scale transmissibility within the human population. And that the protein structures that are surrounding the virus, that are creating the envelope for the virus, have particular amino acid sequences that are seldom ever seen in nature, but are sometimes engineered in a lab. So to me, that's compelling. And uh, I don't think it's definitive or dispositive, but I think it is compelling. And certainly it was something that needed to be considered. And to Biden's credit, he opened up a full investigation, but there of course been no transparency um, or collaboration on the part of the Chinese. So we just don't know. But my greater point is, is that that theory was initially completely discarded. We couldn't have a conversation about it because the quote-unquote conventional media threw it out as wacko conspiracy theory. And the reason why they did is for the litany of whataboutisms that I just spent a good amount of time listing, and there's hundreds and hundreds more. So what we have is one part of society that seems hell-bent 
on contrarianism, on poking holes in institutions at every opportunity. And then we have another sector of society that is just exhausted and that seems committed, but also wary around patching the leaky hull of liberal democracy's institutions. So, you know, I don't have a prescription per se, but this is my best effort diagnosis of the root causes of an epistemological crisis that has led to this polarization, this utter chasm that separates one part of our country and another. So the most important thing that any one individual can do at this moment is to commit both to a rigorous examination of what is true, of an eschewing of one's judgment and emotionality around an event. So apply the lessons of Stoicism and Buddhism. And then on the other side, at the same time, we need to commit ourselves to real honest questions that are looking for real honest answers. And that specious skepticism, whataboutism, is completely corrosive to society and healthy public discourse. Because we just simply cannot function in a world where it's just horse dewormer or 100% effective. Every single one of society's and humanity's great projects has been predicated on our ability to cooperate flexibly at scale. And in the absence of that, we devolve into entropy and to chaos. And that's where we seem to be headed. So, again, in this new year, take control over what you can control. And hopefully we can work together to bridge the chasm, have hard conversations, and find the middle ground. Because that's where the truth is most often hidden. Thanks for listening. I'm always here for your comment at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.